Well, good morning. I, um, I want to start our time together this morning with just a brief moment of transparency and confession. Um, my name is Wes Jackson, and I am a natural skeptic. And um, so as I tell you that, I need to know who my people are this morning. So um, if you would say that you are naturally a skeptic person, um, would you just kind of raise your hand and let me see you. I want to I make sure I'm not the only one in the room. I know that I'm not. All right, awesome. I see you. I see you. There are many of you that you are, but you're skeptic. You're like, I'm not raising my hand because he's going to make fun of me if I raise my hand. So I'm just going to keep my hand down. Um, I'm naturally skeptic. I have um, some trust issues. Uh, sometimes I'm not sure I can completely trust someone or something, um, it, which leads me to be a control freak. Um, and I would be willing to bet that I'm not the only control freak in the room this morning as well. Are there any control freaks in the room? Let me just see your hands. Yeah. Again, some of you are like, I'm not letting you control me, Wes. I will not put my hand up. And that's okay. That's okay. I don't blame you. Because you don't know me and, and you just, you know, you're skeptic. I get it. What I've learned is um, that has dictated some things in my life. It has created some fear. It has created some anxiety um, when it comes to things like flying. Um, I don't particularly enjoy getting on an airplane. There's something about that that makes me skeptical that a big piece of steel can travel 35,000 feet in the air and not fall to the ground um, at my destruction. And so um, I'm nervous about that. Several years ago, my wife and I decided we were going to uh, go on a, a trip, we were going to go on a vacation, and we went to Florida, and I knew that we were going to have to get on an airplane in order to get there. We were going to have to fly there. So I was pumped. I was excited. I was looking forward to the opportunity to spend some time with my wife just to get away and, and kind of disconnect from everything going on back at home, at work, and everything. And, um, and with that expectation of all the fun and the excitement, there was also some nervousness, there was some fear, there was some stress at the thought that I was going to have to get on an airplane to fly to Florida. So the day came, we get to the, the airport, we get on the plane, and we're not sitting together. She, she was actually sitting a few rows behind me because we're cheap, and we just went with the best available seats. And so uh, I'm sitting there, you know, nervous, a little bit, you know, armpits are sweating, you know, it's, it's, the struggle was real. I'm sitting there. And right as we start to back out from the gate, the plane is moving, um, they're giving all the instructions on what to do in case of an emergency, again, why I'm skeptic. Um, as we're backing away, the plane goes completely silent. It, it, it completely shuts off. Everything electrical, everything mechanical, everything shuts down. So the air stops blowing, all the displays on the TVs goes out. And in that moment, I thought to myself, oh my gosh. Because a friend had texted me earlier that day knowing that I didn't like to fly. And he said, hey, have you heard about the electrical shorts going on with American Airlines airplanes? And I thought he was kidding. And he was. Ironically, this happens at the same time. And I'm like, oh my gosh, he was right. We got some electrical problems. And so I'm sitting there really kind of finding myself in a place of frustration because I have to, I'm beginning to think, you know what, we're going to have to pull back up to the gate, they're going to unload this plane, they're going to have to unload the luggage, they're going to have to find a new plane, we're going to miss out on a whole day of vacation. But that's not what happened. The plane comes back on, continues to back from the gates, head out on the taxiway, and I'm thinking, are you serious? Are you, are you, you've got to be kidding me. In that moment, I thought, thought to myself, What's going to keep this thing from doing what it just did when we're 35,000 feet in the air? What's going to keep this plane from just completely shutting off? And so I responded as you would. I tightened my seatbelt because that's going to do a lot of good from 35,000 feet. I was buckled up. 
I'm, I'm starting to panic. I'm starting to, to feel a lot of fear and anxiety. The guy behind me, there's a guy from Puerto Rico sitting right behind me. And at one point while we're taxiing down the taxiway, he goes, does anybody else have any fear that this plane may shut off in the middle of flight? And I'm like, that dude is preaching what I'm thinking. Like, somebody needs to listen to this man. He is a wise man. We're cleared for takeoff. We get on the runway and we start to take off. And I think to myself, man, I got to get out of here. And listen, I could have. The exit, the emergency exit was three rows in front of me. I could have escaped the situation. I could have taken everything into my control and said, you know what? I don't know that I can trust the guy that's in charge of this plane. I don't know that I can trust his judgment. I don't know that I can trust this plane. So I'm going to take control into my own hands. I'm out. That would have been good for a couple of seconds. And then what ended really, really poorly for me. Now, I tell you that story this morning because it sets us up for the passage that we're going to read. But the reality is, is there are times in our lives, there are seasons in our lives, there are transitions in our lives that we find ourselves in. And we have to answer the question, who ultimately is in control? Who will I allow to be in control? The summer before my senior year of high school was really the summer for me, similar to what you saw in the video this morning with students, where I decided for the first time that I was going to surrender everything about my life, all my dreams for my future, everything that had happened up to my life, up, up to that point in my life, everything was, was Jesus. I was all in. I was fully committed. I said, Jesus, my life is yours. Take and do with it what you want to. And it felt good in that moment, but there were seasons, and there's been seasons ever since, where there's transition, there's tragedy, there's victories, there's losses, but it's, asked, it's forced me to ask the question, who's going to be in charge? You know, the transition from high school to college was an exciting time. I was finally going to be out from the umbrella of my parents' authority and um, leadership, and I was going to get to make choices on my own. I was excited about that, but I was stressed about that as well. I had to ask the question, who ultimately is going to be in control? You know, through the dating scene, I had to ask, who's going to be in control? I got to know my wife, and we became, we, we became married, and I had to learn, who's going to be in control? Am I going to be this kind of husband or that kind of husband? And then we had kids. It's like, am I going to be this kind of a father or that kind of father? Ultimately, who's going to be in control? Because there was the decision before my senior year of high school where I said, Jesus, you're the boss of my life. Will I continue to allow Jesus to be that boss for me? Now, I don't know what season of life you're in. I don't know what transition you might find yourself in. I'm not sure what type of wins and losses you may be experiencing currently. But I know for everyone in the room, there is some level of tension today deciding ultimately who will be in control of my life. Whether it's a transition of a new job. Maybe it's a transition in a new relationship. Maybe it's a transition from um, having kids at home to becoming an empty nester. No matter what that is, we have to ask the question, who is ultimately going to be in control? And I want to look at a story this morning that I think helps us understand how to navigate through those seasons, through those transitions. It's a story about Joshua, which we're going to pick up in Joshua chapter 1. So if you have your Bible and you want to turn there, maybe you have the Bible app or you want to watch on the large iPad screen behind me. Um, the verses will be up on the screen. But I want us to look at this passage and gain some understanding for ourselves this morning. Joshua chapter 1 verse 1 says this. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give to them, to the Israelites. 
Now a little context in what's going on here. Joshua has just taken over leadership of the Israelites. They have been in the wilderness. They have been um, under the leadership of Moses. They respected Moses. They loved Moses. They have just gone through an incredibly difficult time um, realizing that Moses is now gone. And so now they're transitioning, um, hopeful that God's about to move them into the promised land, the land that has been promised to them, something they've looked toward with great expectation. But there's got to be a little bit of anxiety coupled with this. Joshua's a new leader. Can they trust Joshua? Can Joshua trust God? Can they trust God? What battles lie ahead? What's it going to look like? What's the future hold? So while there's excitement and anticipation, there's fear, there's stress, there's anxiety, there's the season of transition going on for the Israelites. And so God is having this conversation with Joshua. In verse 3 it says, I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Notice, I will be with you. And then he goes on, he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You know, our current culture sometimes deceives us because we, we tell everybody that you're special. Everybody gets a trophy. You're, you're awesome. You can do anything you put your mind to. And we deceive ourselves to think that we have the capability to accomplish anything. You notice in this passage, God is communicating to Joshua, not Joshua, you are awesome. Joshua, Joshua, you can do this. Joshua, you're a snowflake. Joshua, you're not the reason this is going to succeed. He's saying, Joshua, you're going to move forward because of who I am, because I am with you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And then he says something that I want us to really focus on this morning. In verse 6, it says, be strong and courageous. Because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. And then verse 7, he repeats himself. He says, be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. And then verse 9, my life verse, the verse that I try to reflect on almost every single day. He repeats himself a third time. He says, have I not commanded you? Be strong and and courageous, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Now this is an interesting conversation, and it's in this moment of where, where God is telling Joshua, Joshua, Moses has gone on. This is your time. This is the moment you've been waiting for. But it's not all about you. And he repeats himself a couple times. You know, before I had kids, I used to believe that I was a semi-intelligent person. But since I've had kids, I've got two little boys, an eight-year-old and a six-year-old, um, I've realized that I have become quite repetitive. Some of you know what I'm talking about. No. 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 Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. Be quiet. Be quiet. I need you to be quiet. Go to bed. 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 Like go to bed. Like be careful, Braden, Camden. Be careful, boys. Be careful. Please be careful. Some teenager in the room right now is saying, "Dude, that's my mom." And listen, she was normal before she had you. Okay, that's all your fault. You know, sometimes I feel like I've lost my mind because I feel like I'm repeating myself constantly. But why am I repeating myself when I'm talking to my kids? Because it's important that they understand what I am saying. I want them to understand the urgency. 
I want them to pay attention because what I have for them and what I am communicating to them is in their best interest. It's what's best for them. And I think God is doing the same thing with Joshua. He's saying, Joshua, be strong and courageous. Joshua, be very strong and courageous. Joshua, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. He's saying, Joshua, you need to remember this because there's something about to take place. You're about to dive into what's new for your life. You need to remember this because it's going to be really, really easy to forget when you begin to face the battles that are ahead. Joshua, be strong and courageous. And then we skip over to Joshua chapter 5. We're on the eve of the first battle, the battle of Jericho. We read about Joshua is basically out at night. He's probably um, feeling a lot of anxiety. He's feeling a lot of excitement. He's nervous. He's anticipating the day ahead. I mean, he's a warrior. He's a man's man. And so he's out at night, and it says um, that he actually, in verse 13, it says, now when Joshua was near, that word near, it means he literally was standing next to the wall of Jericho. It says he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Now, can I just be real for just a second? If this is me in that situation and I am walking in the middle of the night, in the darkness, in enemy territory, and a man shows up with a sword, a sword drawn, like I'm out. I'm done. I'm not hanging around for a conversation. I'm not hanging around for a fight. I'm just, I'm gone. Joshua's not that way. Joshua's a man's man. Joshua is the Chuck Norris of the Old Testament, all right? If Joshua was born in Hockley, Texas and was raised here, he would drive a big truck and on the back window, he would have a huge sticker that says, ain't scared, all right? Joshua was a man's man. Death once had a near Joshua experience. People wear Superman pajamas, but Superman wears Joshua pajamas. You get what I'm saying? You catching what I'm saying here? So here's what Joshua says. He says, are you for us or for our enemies? Look at the response in verse 14. Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. It's interesting that he responds with neither, and he's basically saying, hey, listen, Joshua, the question isn't, am I on your side, but instead, are you on my side? Continues on, it says, then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servants? The commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals, for this place where you are standing is holy, and Joshua did so. Now before we move on, we have to ask ourselves, who in the world is Joshua talking to? The commander of the Lord's army, not the lieutenant, not the assistant, but the commander of the Lord's army. You know, oftentimes we can read through this passage and quickly pass over this and just assume that he's um, having a conversation with an angel, um, a messenger of God. But that's not consistent with what we read in other parts of Scripture. In fact, in Revelation 22, we hear about an encounter that John has with an angel. And the angel gets frustrated with John and says, John, don't worship me. I'm just an angel. Worship God. But we see here that Joshua actually falls down on his face and begins to worship whoever this is. So it's not an angel. So who is it? Scholars call this a Christophany. This is a physical manifestation of God himself. This is a pre-nativity appearance of Jesus before Bethlehem in the New Testament. So in this moment, Joshua is at the wall of Jericho and he comes face to face with God himself and he responds in the only way that's adequate to respond to God. When we see God, 
when we recognize God, when we experience God, the only response that's valid is to simply surrender and to worship. And we see this in Joshua's life. God is wanting to remind Joshua one more time. Remember, he said, be strong and be courageous. It's not what you're going to do, it's what I'm going to do. And it's like it's one final reminder. Joshua, I know you're consumed with what has to happen tomorrow. I know you're obsessed and overwhelmed with this battle that's to come. But you need to remember, this is my battle, not yours. I've already won the battle. Look what it says in in Joshua chapter 6, verse 1. He says, now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. He said, Joshua, the battle's already been won. But here's how it's going to look. This is what the battle plan is. And then he goes on in the next few verses and he basically tells Joshua, Joshua, I need you to, uh, tomorrow, I need you to get your army together. I need you to get seven priests with ram's horns. I need you to get the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Lord. I need you to march around the city one time every day for the next six days. And then on the seventh day, Joshua, I want you to do the same thing, but I want you to do it seven times. And then on that final time around the city, the priests are going to blow the horns, and at the sound of the blowing of the horns, every man will shout, and at the shout of those men, the walls are going to fall, and you will be victorious. Sound good? That's the battle plan. Joshua, put your musicians out front and march. I mean, think about this. This has got to be crazy for Joshua. This is the moment he's been waiting for. He's ready to prove himself. He's ready to fill the shoes of Moses, but begin to make a legacy for himself. And God steps into the scene. He says, hey, I need you to remember me. I need you to recognize me. I need you to recognize that this is my battle, not your battle. I'm allowing you to be a part of that. Joshua, here's what you're going to do. It would be like being the starting quarterback on a football team, um, the second string quarterback on a football team. The starter goes down. It's your time to shine. It's your chance to, to, to lead the team. And the coach says, all right, here's your play. You're actually not going to run a play. We're going to break the huddle. We're going to turn around. We're going to hold hands. And we're going to sing Amazing Grace. Ready? On two. Break. It's like, what is that? This isn't at all what I anticipated it would look like. So they begin to march for six days, and then on the seventh day, they march, and they march, and they march. They get to the seventh time, and Joshua commands the people. He reminds the people of what's supposed to happen, but he reminds them of one thing that he um, hasn't told them yet. In verse 18, he says, but keep away from the devoted things, so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. Now we have to pay attention to this. We cannot forget this detail. This is important and it will all make sense in just a second. So they did as, did as they were instructed. And in verse 20 it says, when the trumpet sounded, the army shouted. And at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So everyone charged straight in and they took the city. Pretty crazy story. Pretty bizarre, miraculous Um, occurrence up to this point we go to chapter 7 we pick up in verse 1 it says but the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things Achan of the tribe of Judah took some of them so the Lord's anger burned against Israel and we don't have any indication that Joshua knew that this had happened up to this point so in verse 2 it says, now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai which is the next city over it's the next battle he sent some people over to scout it out In verse 3, it says, when they returned to Joshua, they said, not all the army will have to go up against Ai. Just only send two or three thousand men to take it and do not weary the whole army, for only a few people live there. 
So about 3,000 went up, but, but they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about 36 of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. They just had this incredible victory. They're going into their next battle, and all of a sudden, the Israelites are overtaken. They're defeated, and the people are confused. They're like, Joshua, you've led us to this battle. We had great victory, and we're expecting another great victory, but we've been defeated. Joshua, what's happening? Where is God? What, what happened in all this? Why is God not faithful in this? Why is God, God not upholding, holding up to his promise? Joshua, what has happened? They're distressed. They're confused. They're frustrated. They're angry. They're hurting. So Joshua has another encounter with God, and he falls on his face before God. And he's like, God, I don't know what's happened. You've let me down. And God basically communicates to him, that there hasn't been a full faithfulness from his people towards him and that Joshua needs to do everything that he can to get rid of it among the people. Verse 1 actually tells us that what it's described as is an unfaithfulness. And I think it's more than just a little bit of greed. I think what happens in Achan's life is he gets to a place where he feels like he's unable to depend on God to meet his needs and he decided that he would ultimately take control of the situation. Achan's skepticism and his, willing, his, his desire to control the situation leads him to a place of unfaithfulness. He begins to think to himself, I'm not sure I can trust God in this situation. I'm not sure I can trust God to fight this battle for me, to, to provide for me, so I'm going to take matters into my own hands. And we see that it leads to destruction as you continue to read on in Joshua. So what does this mean for us this morning? What does this mean in your season of transition, in your season of life, whatever it is that you're going through, where does this land for us? God is commanding us just like he did Joshua. He's saying, hey, listen, I need you to be strong and courageous. So what does that, what does that look like? What does it look like as you dive into something new, as you're experiencing what you're going through right now in life? What does it look like to be strong and courageous and how in the world can we accomplish that? I'm glad you asked because I think there's two things that basically have to happen. In order for us to be strong, we must surrender. You see, we find our strength in surrender. Now that seems bizarre and that seems backwards because when we think of the idea of surrender, just think about being on a battlefield for just a second. You are fighting the enemy and there's a moment where you realize that you are about to be overtaken. So instead of fighting, you decide, I'm just gonna surrender. I'm gonna throw my weapons down, I'm gonna throw my hands up, maybe even fall on my knees and just say, listen, I, I give up control to you, I surrender to you. And in that moment, there's a lot of uncertainty, there's probably a lot of fear because you don't know what the enemy is going to do now that you are in their control. And so to, to surrender in order to gain strength seems backwards, it seems like that doesn't work. But what we're actually doing is it's we're saying, hey, God, I throw my hands up, I give my life to you, I surrender to you because I trust that your power is greater than mine, that your plans are greater than mine, that your purpose is greater than mine. And so I give myself to you, I surrender to you because I trust you. You see, Joshua has this encounter with God himself the night before the battle. God is reminding Joshua, Joshua, this isn't your battle. This is a battle that I'm going to fight for you. He comes as commander, not as lieutenant, not as assistant, not just to come alongside. He says, I'm the commander. I'm the commander in chief. I will fight this battle for you. So it forces us to ask the question, 
How do you see God in your life? Is he primary or is he secondary? Maybe a simpler way to think about this is, is this. Is he God or is he Lord God? You see, if he's Lord God, then that means he calls the shots. His ways are my ways. God, you are, you are Lord. You are, you are master of everything in my life. You are the commander, of, commander in chief in my life. You see, if we see him as simply just God, then we see him as somebody um, or something similar to just having a spare tire. He's, he's with us. He's maybe hanging out in the back of our car or he's up on a shelf or he's hanging out in the garage. And then when we find ourselves in a moment of crisis, in a moment of panic, in a moment of stress, it's we, we got to call on God. God, I need you to step into the situation. I need you to remedy this for me. I need you to fix this for me. I need you to take care of this. I need you to walk with me because I'm scared right now. God, I need you right now. And listen, God wants to do every, every one of those things. But first, he must come as Lord God. As long as we focus on him as God, then we haven't fully surrendered to ourselves. You see this in the life of Achan. You know, it's interesting with Achan, you don't see anything where he switches sides. You don't see him walk away from God. You don't see him declare that he doesn't believe in God anymore. You just see in the life of Achan where he felt like he needed to take control of a certain area in order to guarantee his security. He thought to himself, you know, I'm not sure I can really trust God in this, this area of my life. And so I'm going to take some of this and I'm going to hide it away from me just so that I can have some security and some confidence. I'm going to take matters into my own hands. What kind of Aiken-like compromise do you see in your life? Is there an area in your life where you're not allowing God to be Lord God and he's simply just God? See, I, I know many people who... Um, feel confident about trusting God with some things, but to trust him with everything? I don't know, Wes. I'm not sure that I, I can do that. I can trust God with um, the thought of heaven and spending life with him and being with him forever, him escorting me to a place that's safe when I die. I can trust him with that, but to trust him with my marriage? I, I, don't, I don't know, Wes. Or to trust him with my kids? To trust him in... A relationship. I, I'm not sure that I can really trust him when it comes to my dating life. Um, I don't know. Like, I, I think I'm going to hang on to this area and just do things the way that I feel like I need to do them because I really need to have security in this relationship. This relationship makes me feel better. And let's be real, Wes. He's cute. And I can help make him godly, but I can't make him cute. And he's really cute, and I need him to be cute. So I'm just going to hang on to this area of my life. Or maybe it's your plans for the future, your hopes, your dreams, your goals. And instead of allowing God to be Lord God in those, you say, hey God, this is where I'm going. This is the direction that I plan to take. Would you come alongside me and bless me as I go? You're simply seeing God as God and not Lord God. You see, we have to fully surrender. The idea of lordship is a word that must be total in order for it to mean anything. If I stood at the altar with my wife the day that we got married and I said, Brandy, I am exclusively yours. I am committed to you, except for on Saturdays from 8 p.m. to 4 a.m. But listen, that's 93%. I'm 93% committed to you. Like, that's a good deal, right, babe? Like, she's not, she's not taking that deal. Sometimes I think we treat God that way. We pick and we choose because we're unwilling to fully surrender but we find our strength in surrender as we find our strength in surrender we also find our courage in obedience 
as we hear what God says and as we listen to what God says, then we begin to act on that, then we begin to obey, and we begin to find courage in that. Throughout the entire book of Joshua, you see the people of God struggle to walk confidently in the direction that he's called them to walk because of fear. And fear ultimately leads to rebellion. I think it's why God does things in a certain way. I mean, imagine these guys. These guys are about to, go to, about to go to war. They're about to fight. And it's like, okay, God, we're ready to go. We're ready to fight. We're ready to win. And he says, just march. Just march. But God, that doesn't make sense. And God says, just march. You see, I need to see progress. But we don't even see progress. I mean, day one, they're marching. There's no bricks moving. There's no wall shaking. There's just the enemy taunting from the top of the wall saying, is this all you got? You're just going to walk around quietly? I mean, I've got to see progress. And we don't see any indication in this passage that Joshua even told the Israelites how long they would march. God told Joshua, but we don't see Joshua tell them. And so they just begin to march day after day after day. I mean, imagine, I don't think things were probably a whole lot different back then as they are now, but just imagine being a warrior in Joshua's army. You come home after that first day at battle and your wife asks you the question, how was your day? And listen, men, we all know that that's not a question where she's looking for a one-word answer to you saying like, oh, it was good, it was bad, it was fine. No, she wants details. She wants to know what happened, what went on, what took place. What do you think about what took place? How do you feel about what took place? How do you feel about how you feel about what took place? And then after you finish describing all of that, she wants you to ask her the same question. It's an hour and a half long conversation with lots of emotion, lots of feeling, lots of facial expressions. It's healthy. I mean, just imagine this conversation going on. How was your day? How was the battle? We walked. I don't really know what's going on. Like Joshua, I think Joshua's got us on some kind of vision trip just to kind of decide on exactly how this is going to work. She's like, oh, okay, well, maybe tomorrow will be better. Day two arrives. He comes home. How's my warrior today? How was your day, babe? How, how are things going? We just walked again. No fighting. I didn't punch anybody. But I did meet, I did meet my Fitbit goal, so there's, there's that. I mean, let's be real. In that moment, I'm, I'm, I'm stopping. I'm quitting. Day two, day three, like, God, this clearly, this doesn't make any sense because as I follow God and as I trust God, I need to know the why and the when. God, I'm all in for you, but I really need to know why I'm having to do things this particular way. God, could you just show me why and then tell me how long this is going to last? What's, this, how, what's, the, what's the time frame that this is going to take? You know, it's, it's like, it's like um, dieting, like dieting or working out. I want to see immediate results. I mean, I want to go to Chick-fil-A, and instead of getting the number one value size with a Coke with all the calories, all the sugar, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go against that. I'm going to get a salad. But when I'm walking out of Chick-fil-A, there better be 10 pounds falling off my body as I walk out. Like, I want that diet plan because I want immediate results. I want to see the why, and I want to know how fast it's going to happen. I think this is why God does this the particular way that he does in the story. But it asks the question, why does God do it this way? And I think the reason God does it this way is because what God wanted to do in them was much more important than what he wanted to do through them. He wanted them less focused on the outcome and more focused on him. You see, the outcome is his responsibility. Our faithfulness to him, our faithfulness to obey is our 
responsibility. Nothing may have been happening to the walls over those six days, but there was something happening on the inside of their hearts. Their lives were being transformed. Their their minds were being shaped. They were beginning to to rely and beginning to have to trust and have courage to keep moving forward. You see, courage is simply the ability to keep going when we don't see the results because we trust God's faithfulness. When we trust God's faithfulness, it allows us to keep walking when we're not seeing the progress or the results that we feel like we should be seeing by now. So let me ask you this, where is fear keeping you from obedience? Is it in that relationship? That relationship that you you fully understand isn't God's best for you, but you justify it because of fear? Fear of what life would be like without that relationship? fear of loneliness and how long would you have to experience that loneliness and so because of that fear you choose not to obey you choose to not be courageous or maybe it's the flip side of that the fear is keeping you from pressing in and pressing on in that relationship maybe in that marriage dynamic God's saying you need to hold on you need to stay committed maybe it's addressing an area of sin maybe it's trusting God with your finances making sacrifice, creating space for him to work and to move and to do miracles. Maybe it's having the tough conversation. Maybe there's a conversation of forgiveness that needs to take place. Maybe it's a job change. Maybe it's time to stop pursuing what you've been pursuing and go in a completely new direction and you know that he's, he's moving you in that direction but you're scared because you've always done this and this is all you've ever known but God's saying, no, 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 I want to take you in a different direction. I have something better for you. I have better plans, better purposes, better dreams beyond your wildest expectation. Maybe it's to say yes to a mission trip in 2018, to go on a community of faith mission trip. There's a thousand reasons to say no, but there's one reason to say yes, and that's because God is calling you to say yes. Maybe for some it's to buy the ring and to get down on a knee and to finally commit for life that you want to marry her. Like you know she's the one, she knows that you know she's the one. It's been awkward for years because you both know that, but you haven't been willing to commit. And today's the day that you just simply need to commit and to obey. Whatever it is, it's time to act in faith. But I want to be honest with you this morning. In that moment when you decide I'm all in, I'm completely surrendered. I'm fully committed to walking in obedience. I am ready to be strong and courageous. You will be overwhelmed with fear. Fear of the unknown. Fear of what's ahead. But I don't think it's any irony that as we look through scripture, the phrase fear not is mentioned as a command 366 times. That's one time for every day of the year plus leap year. God says, fear not, I am with you, I go before you, I will not leave you, I will not forsake you, be strong and courageous. So where does this land for us today? You know, Joshua was commanded to be strong and courageous three times, he was reminded over and over and over, be strong and courageous. But then he gets to the wall of Jericho the night before battle and he has an encounter with God. And I believe that this encounter with God is significant because God wanted to remind him that it's not your strength, it's not your courage that's going to win this battle for you, it's mine. God was concerned with Joshua's surrender 
to him. And so what does that mean for you? What is your Jericho? What is the season of life you're in? What is the frustration that you're dealing with? What is the tragedy that maybe you're navigating? What is the newness in life as you adjust from one season to the next? What is it in your life that is overwhelming you and is dominating your thoughts, dominating how you live? What is your Jericho? Today I believe that what God is trying to do is he's trying to get your attention and say, hey, you're focusing on the wrong thing. You're focusing on the enemy, you're focusing on the struggle, and I simply just want you to see me, because when you see me, then you will surrender, and when you surrender, you will recognize my power that goes beyond yours. And so, I want us to close today with communion, because Jesus basically did the same thing. He tells the disciples at the Passover meal, he says, hey, I, I want you to take this bread, represents my body that was broken for you. I want you to take this cup, represents the blood that was poured out for you so that you can have a relationship with God. But I want you to do this often. I want you to eat this bread and take this cup often, but I want you to do it to remember me. Remember that it was my life that was given. It was my death that allowed the wall to come down between you and God so that you could experience his power at work in your life. There was him that goes before us. And Jesus knew, just, he knew that life was gonna be complicated, it was gonna be frustrating, there was gonna be chaos, and there were gonna be reminders necessary in order for us to completely surrender and be strong and courageous. So what is your Jericho? Because here's, here's the mindset I want you to take as you go into communion. Listen, we're not done yet, and I, I believe that there are some here, there are many here today that just need to, to sit and just deal with what God is stirring in your mind. So um, I just, we have an army marching around the parking lot this morning, and um, if you leave early, we just prayed that God would flatten the walls of your tires um, if you decide to leave early. And I say that jokingly, but I say that because I think there's an urgency for us to be obedient to what God is calling us to today and it's to surrender and I want the display of that surrender to be us remembering Jesus through communion delayed obedience is disobedience for too long you've tried to control the situation you've tried to control the outcome you've been skeptical to trust and maybe today for the first time in your life you surrender your life and say Jesus I want you to be my boss I want you to be my king I give everything to you I surrender control. Can that be your moment through communion today?